In the fall of 1992, seven bodies were found in the Belangelo State Forest, all belonging to young people who had disappeared while hitchhiking in New South Wales, Australia. The account of a man who survived a terrifying attack years prior led police to Ivan Milat, one inspiration for the deranged killer in the 2005 Australian horror film Wolf Creek. This is based on a true crime. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. And we're back. Better late than never, right? We are. We're finally back. Yeah, I feel like we are We're in the outback. Yeah. Well, this episode, we are. It's been so long since we sat across from each other. Although, actually, we were separated for like two weeks. Separated? What? <laughs> Physically. Never in spirit. That's right. Yeah. I was in New Jersey. Yeah, David spent two weeks in New Jersey watching, watching my parents' dogs. Yes. I spent a week traveling for work, and then you were back for four days, and uh, we were supposed to record this episode during those days, yes. and then instead we did a ton of work for your art show. Yep. So, yeah. Time uh, well spent. Mad Monster Party Arizona uh, in Phoenix, Scottsdale was really great, so it was worth all the hard work, so sorry for uh, pushing off our podcast duties for a little bit but we hope you enjoy this episode because i think it's going to be a good one yes and we're excited to be back and i know a lot of people are excited for us to finally cover this film because it's you know not only based on a, a true crime but it's a pretty big film in the horror community it's it's very popular and well known well, well and i want to thank you for um getting me to watch this movie because it does fall into that uh category of the 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 horror movies that i typically might not like so much so yeah i feel like it was advertised as being a lot more uh torture porny than it actually was but we'll save that discussion for when we talk about the movie <laughs> yeah so stick with us through the whole episode and you can hear our thoughts on the movie uh, yeah after we talk about the true crime but first i want to thank our new reviews we got new five-star reviews from andy 2018 Ray Cab, 1993, which I'm pretty sure he's the same Ray that's our new Patreon supporter and member of our cult. Oh, right on. Yes. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, Two Flowers and the Affirmative Murder Podcast, another podcast on the Murderly Network. Oh, cool. awesome. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Um, also, we had some correct guesses for our Teaser Tuesday. So we wanted to give Taylor, uh, Chippy TFT, a shout out on Twitter. We had Sparkly Diva 23 on Instagram. And Carrie got the movie and Elizabeth got the true crimes on Facebook. So thanks everybody for jumping in. We love our Teaser Tuesdays. Yes. And sorry that I totally forgot about Teaser Tuesday in our last full episode. I didn't even list the names, but yeah. I'm pretty sure it was Taylor on Twitter because it always is. Yes. So thank you. To, yeah. yeah. Retroactively. Oh, thank yeah. You. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of this episode for promos from our friends uh, True Crime Finland. It's a podcast hosted by Mina. I know I've mentioned it before because she did a great episode on Lake Bottom. And also the Getting Off podcast uh, with Jessa and Nick. They're the pair of defense lawyers that always have just great, great insight into uh, especially the legal aspects of these cases. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so be sure to check out their shows too. 
Yeah, and uh, without further ado, okay, a little bit further ado. On this very special <laughs> episode of Based on a True Crime. No, um, yeah, a little bit of a content warning, right? Yes, yes, there is some, um, not just murder, but sexually motivated murder and body mutilation and all of that, that fun stuff. So this is, you know, it's another one of our serial killer episodes. I think that serial killers and bodily mutilation and sex crimes just go hand in hand. Peanut butter and jelly. All right. Um, <laughs> well, let's get into it. Ivan Robert Marco Malat was born on December 27th of 1944 in Sydney of New South Wales, Australia. His father, Stephen Malat, was a migrant from Yugoslavia, and his mother, Margaret, was born in Australia. When they met, Stephen was 32 and Margaret was just 14. That should not be legal. It is not legal yeah, in most places. I'm, I Don't do say, that. No, no. That's a pretty big age difference. Well, Ivan was their fifth child, and they would go on to have nine more. So they had a total of, what, is that 10? 10 kids? That's a lot. Big family. Uh, no, they had 14 kids. Oh, 14. Wow. He was their fifth child, so they had five, and then they had another nine. Very big family. They have more kids than we have cats, and that's a lot. That's a lot. You're better at math than I am, for sure. Well, the family never had much money, and Stephen would work long hours, first as a wharf laborer, and then later doing market gardening. The Malats were a very insular family, and Ivan's parents were strict disciplinarians who would be physically violent with their children, one time even breaking their son Boris's arm with a tomato steak. But that didn't stop Ivan from acting out. He began skipping classes and was eventually sent to Boystown, an institution for wayward youth. Like his brothers before him, Ivan dropped out of school when he turned 15 to work and to earn money for the family. Guns were constantly accessible in the Malat household, and all 14 children learned how to shoot from a young age. It wasn't long before Ivan began to use these guns to commit crimes. From the age of 17, Ivan was in trouble with the police for car theft and armed robbery. According to his brother Boris, in 1962, Ivan attempted his first thrill kill, shooting and paralyzing a taxi cab driver named Neville Knight. He also served six months in juvie for breaking and entering, and served four more short stints in prison throughout the 1960s. And just to clarify, actually, no one knew that he had been the one to shoot that cab driver until after he was caught for, for the subsequent murders. So actually, I actually think they might have arrested someone else for that crime. So Oh, wow. Yep. So in 1969, the Malats moved to Guildford, a suburb of Sydney. And just two years later, tragedy struck. This was in 1971. Ivan's sister, Margaret, was killed in a head-on car collision. And Ivan was one of the first people on the scene and reportedly took her death very hard. One month after this, Ivan was charged with the abduction and rape of two women who he picked up while they were hitchhiking near Liverpool. And at the same time, he was charged with two counts of armed robbery. So while he was out on bail awaiting all of these charges, he fled to New Zealand. Maybe he was visiting Hobbiton. Oh, yep. Maybe. No. Not in 1971. <laughs> so Ivan returned to Australia in 1974 and he was quickly rearrested, but he beat both the robbery charges and the rape charges in court. Yeah, I bet, uh, especially with the subsequent crimes, people are maybe believing those two women. Yeah, they could have stopped his reign of terror. Yeah. Uh, well, he moved back in with his parents and he began working as an interstate truck driver. It was around this time that he met Karen Duck, a 17-year-old who was pregnant with his cousin's baby. They fell in love. <laughs> so 
she had the the child named Jason and Ivan treated him as if he was Ivan's own child. In 1984, they got married, but their marriage was not a happy one. According to Karen, Ivan was gun crazy and he beat her often. He also had an affair with his older brother's wife, Maureen. So he's oh. stealing ladies from his cousin and his brother. Wow, that's <laughs> causing some intense yeah. family drama. Yep. Uh, well, finally, on Valentine's Day of 1987, Karen packed up all of her belongings and all of the furniture from the house while Ivan was at work, and she made her escape. They officially divorced in 1989, and they didn't see each other again until seven years later when Karen testified against him at his murder trial. On December 30th of 1989, Deborah Everest and James Gibson, who are both 19, left their homes in Melbourne to attend a conservation festival in Albury. It was Deborah's first time traveling away from home, and she was encouraged by her mother to venture out and have some fun. They traveled to Sydney first, where they stayed at a backpacker hostel. They checked out the following day to hitchhike to Albury. They never made it to the festival. James Gibson's camera was found on the side of the road at Galston Gorge by a bushwalker the following day, and a month later his empty backpack was found in the same area. On January 20th of 1991, 21-year-old Simone Schmidl left Sydney to hitchhike to Melbourne, where she was meeting her mother, Erwin. Simone, or Simi, as she was known to friends, was visiting Australia from Regensburg, Germany for a camping holiday. She never made it to Melbourne. After two days of waiting, Erwin called the police. She remained in Australia for six weeks while police searched for her daughter, but they turned up nothing. Almost a year later, in December of 1991, another pair of backpackers went missing. 20-year-old Anja Hibsheed and her 21-year-old boyfriend, Gaber Neusbauer, were traveling together from their home in Germany and had toured Bali before arriving in Australia. They were last seen leaving the backpackers in at King's Cross in Sydney on December the 26th and had plans to hitchhike first to Adelaide and then to Darwin before catching a flight home through Indonesia. They never caught their flight. The last two victims in the so-called backpacker murders were 21-year-old Carolyn Clark and 22-year-old Joanne Walters. Both women were from England. Carolyn was from Northumberland and Joanne was from Wales. But they met in Australia, where both women had set out with the goal of backpacking throughout the southern portion of the country. Like Anja and Gabor, the pair were staying in the Sydney suburb of King's Cross. They left together on April 18th of 1992 bound for Victoria, where they planned to pick fruit to make some money. They made it as far as Bully Pass, near Wollongong, where they asked someone for directions to the Hume Highway. After that, they weren't seen again. The first body was found on September 19th of 1992 by a pair of orienteering enthusiasts who were running in the Belanglo State Forest. The police were called, and the following day, a second body was discovered less than 100 feet, or 30 meters, from the first body. Police quickly confirmed that the bodies were those of Carolyn Clark and Joanne Walters. Joanne had been gagged and stabbed 14 times in her chest, neck, and back. Carolyn Clark had a sweater tied around her head and had been shot 10 times through the sweater, likely while being used as target practice. Both women had also been sexually assaulted. Police searched the forest for the next five days, but found no more bodies. However, over the next 14 months... Five more bodies were found in the Belanglo Forest. In October of 1993, a local man found a human skull and femur in a remote section of the forest. Police examining the scene discovered that there were remains of not one, but two bodies, and they were identified as Deborah Everest and James Gibson. 
the first couple to disappear. James's cause of death was determined to be multiple stab wounds, while Deborah had been beaten and stabbed. Their bodies were found more than 75 miles, or 120 kilometers, from where their belongings had been found on the side of the highway. On November 1st of 1993, the skeletal remains of Simone Schmidl were found in a clearing in the forest by police sergeant Jeff Trichter. She had been stabbed multiple times. Interestingly, clothing found at the scene did not belong to Simone and was identified as belonging to Anja Habshid. Two days later, the bodies of both Anja and Gabor were found buried in shallow graves close to one another. Gabor had been shot six times in the head and stabbed post-mortem. Anja had been decapitated, and to this day her head has never been found. Police quickly realized that they were dealing with a serial killer. There were similarities not only in the victim profile, with backpackers hitchhiking outside of Sydney being targeted, but also in how the victims were killed. Most were stabbed multiple times in the torso, with a few also being shot multiple times in the head. Their bodies were all found face down with their wrists crossed behind their backs and hidden under a pile of large branches. Police further theorized that the killer spent time with his victims both before and after the killing due to the presence of campsites near where the bodies were found. At these campsites, Police found cigarette butts, empty bottles of booze, and spent 22 caliber cartridge cases. Police worked with psychologists to develop a profile of the killer. He was presumed to be a violent loner with alcohol and or drug addiction issues, who at the very least owned a Bowie knife, a sawn-off shotgun, and a 22 caliber Ruger rifle. They also used a computer program called NetMap to narrow down a list of suspects based on this profile, gun ownership records, police records, and tips from the public. Eventually, they had narrowed their list down to 32 suspects. Ivan Malat was one of them. So although they had narrowed it down to this list, the biggest break in the case actually came from a man who survived a strikingly similar attack years earlier. Tabloids in the UK widely publicized what they called the Forest of Death in Australia, particularly because the first two bodies found were those of British tourists. The news caught the eye of 27-year-old Paul Onions, an air conditioning engineer living in Birmingham. Three years prior, Paul had visited Australia on a six-month visa. At first, he was staying in a backpacker hostel in King's Cross, but as he began running low on funds, he started to explore options for part-time work. He heard about an opportunity to earn money picking fruit in Riverina, a district several hundred miles southwest of Sydney. On January 25th of 1990, Paul left Sydney. He took a train to Liverpool and then decided to hitch a ride from the side of the Hume Highway, the same place where, two years later, Carolyn Clark and Joanne Walters would disappear. It was a hot day and no one was stopping. Paul almost gave up when, at last, a man stopped and offered him a ride. The man was muscular and had a long Zapata-style mustache. He introduced himself as Bill. At first, Bill was very chatty, asking Paul questions about where he was from and how long he was planning to stay in Australia. Bill also shared some information about himself, including that he was from a Yugoslavian family and that he was divorced. After about an hour in the car, Bill's demeanor began to change. The once friendly conversation gave way to Bill going on racist tirades and his driving became erratic. Finally, after coming up with an excuse to pull over on the side of the road, Bill drew a gun on Paul and told him that this was a robbery. Bill pulled a length of rope out from under the driver's seat. Paul asked him what he was doing, and Bill told him to shut up and put his seatbelt on. Rather than comply, Paul opened the door and made a run for it. Bill actually shot at him as he fled into oncoming traffic. He was able to flag down a van that was driven by Joanne Barry. 
as it slowed to a stop, Bill lunged after him and tackled him in the median next to the highway. But Paul managed to break free and he threw himself into the van. He screamed at the driver that the man had a gun and she peeled away. When Paul looked back, he saw Bill standing next to the car, watching them leave with a, quote, stupid grin on his face. And he said that he could not get that image out of his head for years. Jeez. Uh, yeah, that's super intense. Yeah, that is straight out of a horror movie. No kidding. Oh, gosh. Well, Paul reported the robbery to police in Bowral, describing the attacker and the vehicle, but the constable told him that it was unlikely they would find the vehicle or its owner without the registration number. In the intervening years, his report was lost. On November the 13th of 1993, Paul Onions called the New South Wales police to tell them about his experience. They took his statement but did not investigate further, at least at first. Police received nearly 1 million tips after opening the tip line and investigated 10,000 leads. That's a lot. They also received multiple tips related to the Milat family. One of Ivan's brothers, Alex, reported to police that he had seen two women tied up in the back of two cars with a group of men, but the tip turned out to be a bust. Maybe intentionally. The wife of a co-worker of Richard Milat, Ivan's younger brother, said that Richard told his co-workers, quote, they haven't found the Germans out there yet. And I know who killed the Germans after the first two bodies were found and months before the bodies of any of the three German tourists were discovered. By the end of 1993, police began to discreetly investigate Ivan Milat, inquired at his place of work, the NSW Road and Traffic Authority Depot in Granville, Sydney, about his holidays and days off in order to match them with the days that the murders took place. They also visited his brother, Walter's home, searching for guns, but Ivan had already hidden them in an alcove in the house. Ivan was placed under near-constant surveillance but there was not enough evidence for them to move on him. In January of 1994, Senior Constable Paul Gordon began to dig deeper into the theory that the victims had met their killer while hitchhiking in the Liverpool area just outside of Sydney. He came across the 1971 rape accusation against Ivan Milat, but also on April 13th, he came across the note made about Paul Onion's November phone call. The description he gave of his attacker fit Ivan Milat to a T. That mustache, man. We'll have to post some pictures on Instagram. Like, Ivan Malat is the only serial killer where I've seen pictures and been like, oh, he's actually not bad looking. I'm like, Ted Bundy, no, he wigs me out. But there's like something about his face. It's just, I don't know. And then you find out what he did and it's like, oh, I am not a good judge of character, I guess. He'd be talking to you with that sexy Australian accent. Oh, man. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, watch out, David. <laughs> well, on May 2nd, Paul Onions was secretly flown to Australia. He picked Ivan Malat out of a photo lineup as his attacker. Police began making plans to raid seven properties belonging to the Malat family. On May 21st, police re-interviewed Alex about his initial report of seeing the two women kidnapped. While they were at his home, Alex's wife gave them a backpack that she said Ivan gave to them after a friend from New Zealand left it with him. But the backpack did not belong to a friend from New Zealand. In fact, it belonged to Simone Schmidl. At 6.30 a.m. on May 22nd, police phoned Ivan Malat's home and told him to exit with his hands raised. At first, he thought it was a prank, but after the third call, he finally left the home with his girlfriend, Shalander Hughes. Ivan was immediately placed under arrest. The following day, he was charged with robbery for the attack on Paul Onions. He wasn't charged with the murders until May 31st, by which time police found a wealth of evidence at his home. In a wall cavity, they found parts of the Ruger rifle, which was used in the murders, a water bottle that had belonged to Simone Schmidl, an Olympus camera that had belonged to Carolyn Clark, 
sleeping bags that belonged to Deborah Everest and Simone Schmidl, and a tent that belonged to Simone. In the garage, they found a pillowcase with five sash cords in it, and one of them had Carolyn Clark's bloodstains on it. Police also found evidence at the homes of other members of the Malat clan. In addition to Simone's backpack, police found Carolyn Clark's tent and bedroll at Richard's house. And at Ivan's mother's house, they found t-shirts belonging to Simone and, oddly enough, Paul Onions. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, during Ivan's committal hearing, stories came out about Ivan's time in prison in 1974. According to his former cellmate, Ivan spoke often about his proclivity towards rape, murder, and torture. He said, quote, I was terrified. He talked about how he would stake people out on the ground, cut them open, and let them bleed. The stories went on and on. Male, female, boy, girl. He never spoke about the same person twice, and the stories were nonstop every night. He also said that Ivan talked about how he liked to stab a woman in the spine to paralyze her before raping her so she could see the crime but not fight back. This was consistent with the stabbing wounds of several of his known female victims. Ivan Milat's trial began on March 26th of 1996 in the St. James Road Court. It lasted four months. Over the course of the trial, the jury was brought to the sites in the Belanglo Forest where the bodies were found. The prosecution called Karen Milat, Ivan's ex-wife, to the stand as a witness. She testified that, despite Ivan's claims to have never been to the Bangalore State Forest, she had actually been there with him multiple times, and during those trips, he seemed to know his way around. Paul Onions was also a witness for the prosecution, and he recounted his attack and named Ivan Malat as his attacker. Eventually, Ivan Malat took the stand, but did not offer a convincing defense. He continued to say that he had never been to the Belanglo Forest, and that he had no idea where the Ruger rifle or the victim's belongings came from. The prosecutor, Mark Tedeschi, said to him during cross-examination, quote, You asked the jury to accept that someone broke into your locked house despite the burglar alarm, planted a Ruger rifle bolt in the ceiling of your garage, dropped the weapons receiver in one of your boots in the hall cupboard, making sure both gun parts were painted in the same camouflage colors you use on your firearms, then left a single-fired cartridge linked to the murders of Miss Caroline Clark in a plastic bag on the bed in the spare room? Ivan replied, quote, They must have. Not very convincing at all. Well, during closing statements, the defense employed their best and likely only strategy by raising the possibility that either one or both of Ivan's younger brothers had committed the murders and planted the evidence in Ivan's home, hoping that it was at least enough to plant the seed of reasonable doubt. But the jury did not buy it. After 20 hours of deliberation spread over four days, the jury found Ivan Malat guilty of all charges. He was sentenced to life in prison. During the sentencing, the judge expressed his belief that, quote, the prisoner was not alone in that criminal enterprise. Ivan Malat was first sent to the Maitland Correctional Center, where within a year, he took part in a failed prison escape attempt. He was then sent to Goulburn Correctional Center, a super maximum security prison. He made multiple appeals on the basis of not having quality legal representation, but all were thrown out. In 2009, 
he cut off his pinky finger with a plastic knife in order to mail the finger to the high court. He has never admitted to committing any of the crimes. Most of the close-knit Malat family has been hesitant to speak out against Ivan, with one exception. Ivan's brother, Boris, considered the black sheep of the family somehow. The serial killer is not the black sheep. It's uh, this fellow Boris. Um, But he has given multiple interviews on the topic of his brother's crimes. It was in one of these interviews that he revealed Ivan's very first criminal act, which was, as David mentioned earlier, the shooting of that taxi driver in 1962. When Boris was asked whether he still loves his brother, he replied, no, no. That is a question going too far, that is. That's a bit like me forgiving him, and I can't forgive him. I can't do that. The priest tells me I'm going to be damned to hell because I'm judging him. Well, good. Let me go. I don't care. The most joyous day of my life will be when the guy that brought all this about, that's Ivan, has passed on, and I hope he passes on before me. He also expressed his opinion that there were more bodies to be found, saying, quote, The things I can tell you are much worse than what Ivan's meant to have done. Everywhere he's worked, people have disappeared. I know where he's been. That's terrifying. Yep. I wonder there's a, a movie inspired by Ivan. Yeah. And that's a good segue into one of my discussion points, which is that there are a whole slew of other potential victims. So police, over the course of their investigation, they made a list of young people who disappeared or were found murdered in areas connected to Ivan Malat. And that list was 58 people and 15 of them disappeared while hitchhiking oh that's super suspicious just a a selection that i wanted to mention one a woman named karen roland she disappeared on february 26th of 1971 she was following her sister in her car when the headlights kind of disappeared from the rearview mirror and her car was later found out of gas And her body was found in May, dumped in the Fairburn Pine Plantation, and she had been sexually assaulted. The day after she disappeared, so on February 27th, Ivan told co-workers that he had killed a man and buried the body in the bush. So... Which, like, if a coworker told me that, I feel like I would probably go to the police. Yeah, that's so random. That's not like, Generally, oh, I went to, yeah. where, what did you do this weekend? Oh, nothing. Killed then. a man and buried him in the bush. Yeah. The following year, on July 1st of 1972, a pair of roommates, Robin Hoynville Bartram and Anita Cunningham, disappeared. Robin's body was found shot to death and Anita was never found. A witness who spoke to these women said that they mentioned they were traveling with a man called Cowboy who also went by Richard. Richard is one of Ivan's brothers. That was the name. But actually, Ivan also had a brother named Bill and he was known to to go by Bill to introduce himself as Bill to victims like, like Paul Onions. So... Oh. Yeah. Mm. I think you just had so many siblings that like every common male name is covered there. Yeah. So on October 6th of 1972, two more women disappeared, Gabrielle Jenke and Michelle Riley. When they found Michelle's body, they found that there were branches piled on top of her, which was similar to how Ivan's later victims were were found in Belanglo. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that that fits the MO, right? Yep. Um, And then finally in late 1978, and early 1979, Ivan Malat was working as a road worker 
and he was staying in the vicinity of the Pacific Highway in the Hunter region. And around that time, uh, three women disappeared from that region. Uh, Leanne Goodall, who was 20, Robin Hickey, who was 18, and Amanda Robinson, who was just 14. None of these women, like no bodies were ever found. So, And the list goes on. There, there are more. <laughs> Crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Good so, thing he was caught. You think you're going to Australia and the wildlife is going to get you, but it's actually the serial killers or the drop bears. Sorry, this episode is sponsored by the Australian Tourism Society. <laughs> yeah. Oops. No, Australia is a beautiful place. Yes. Don't, don't be afraid of David's, uh, one serial killer. David has been to Australia. I yeah, have not been. That's lovely. And he made it back. I did. Yeah. So I guess the other big discussion point that comes out when um, when people talk about Ivan Milat is you know, exactly what was brought up at the trial, which is, you know, did he act alone? Defense put that out as something to cast some doubt over his conviction. But the judge seemed to think he was not acting alone. And a lot of people think that it was um, maybe a, a Texas chainsaw massacre situation. Oh, because the Where the family. family was involved. Oh, it was a large family and it was a very insular family. So and they're of ages where there's many still living, probably, right? Oh yeah, I mean Ivan Milat's still living. Yeah, um, friend of the, uh, I mean not friend of, <laughs> listener of the show. No, <laughs> no way. But there are a few facts surrounding the case which support this. At one of the the death scenes, there were two different rifles had been used. So you know, is one person going to shoot with one gun and then shoot with another gun? I mean, I don't know. I, I would not actually put that past Ivan Milat because he was supposed to be pretty gun crazy and apparently he would like demonstrate his skills with his gun to his victims before demonstrating on them all sorts of crazy messed up stuff it's like now that's not a gun this is a gun um and that's you know they basically do that in the movie too um but there are also different methods that were used to kill pairs of victims so carolyn clark and joanne walters who had been traveling together carolyn was shot 10 times in the head and joanne walters was stabbed 14 times to death um, and same thing with gabor and anja one was shot and the other was decapitated there were also cigarette butts and liquor bottles which were found near the grave sites but actually ivan malat surprisingly did not smoke nor drink and actually they made the connection to his sister shirley who was also i believe she was also his roommate and she was a smoker so they thought maybe she might have been involved or at least present or um, one of his his younger brothers richard or wally after hearing all that what do you think david is he actually wrongfully convicted is he is he innocent of all charges it's really interesting to think of that whole texas chainsaw sawyer family kind of thing but i feel like that's kind of a well when we talked about texas chainsaw the movie i guess we did talk about the the real life inspiration behind that and that was sort of a family so, you know, the family that kills, to there's a saying, Family right? that kills together stays together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. That seems a little bit fantastical to me. We know plenty of serial killers who have super high uh, number of murders that they've committed. And I think that that's the simplest explanation is the most likely. I, I just think that he did them all. It is interesting to me, though, that Richard did go to police with a story that I think was fake, that I think he might have made up to to cover for his brother so oh, i feel so like you think that maybe the family was aware that something was going on aware or suspicious I, I think that they were looking out for him at some point you have to be like ivan stop bringing me sleeping bags i don't want these random sleeping bags that you're bringing home maybe they could have been like oh hikers keep disappearing and then ivan comes home with a backpack and a tent and a sleeping bag and a camera and a water bottle 
from random sources. I don't know. I think our sets of parents would protect us if it was highly likely that we were serial killers. All right. So I, I do have two more little, should we call them mini stories? So yeah, sure. What do you got? All right. So one is a bit of a copycat crime. So in 2012, Ivan Malat's great nephew, Matthew Malat, murdered a man with a friend of his. He was sentenced to 43 years in prison for the crime. And he had actually committed this murder in the Belenglo State Forest. And he murdered this this person with an axe. And his friend was there and recorded it on his mobile phone. It's what the cool kids are doing, I guess. Oh, God. So yes, I guess, you know, he was inspired by his uncle to take up the family business. Um, And then finally, I did just want to mention that, you know, when you read about Wolf Creek, which we'll be getting into here in in just a minute, uh, you'll see it's actually not just... Ivan Milat, who inspired the crime, but also a killer named Bradley Murdoch. So he murdered Peter Falconio, who was traveling in Australia with his girlfriend, Joanne Lees. They were driving and Bradley Murdoch was following them and tailgating them and signaled for them to pull over on the side of the road. And he told them that there were sparks coming out of the the back of their car. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. So he had uh, Peter Falconio come out with him to to check out the car. And Joanne Lees, who was inside of the car, heard a gunshot, realized that the man had had killed Peter. And she made a run for it. She's a total badass. She was like dodging bullets and hiding in the brush and like while she was hiding Bradley Murdoch was like out there walking around looking for her but he didn't find her and they they got him so oh wow yep that's pretty good yep power to her power to Paul Onions brave kick-ass people surviving situations where I think I would just shrivel up and die (laughs) (laughs) yeah no you're an ass kicker you'd be fine You'd, you'd totally be the final girl. Oh, I thank you. All right. Well, that's the story of Ivan Milat, one of the lead inspirations for the film Wolf Creek, which we are going to talk about here in just a second. So sit tight. We'll be right back. So far, no sign of intelligent life forms. Wow. That's awesome. Looks like we might be spending the night. What the hell? Just stay in the car! What the bloody hell are you mob doing out here? <laughs> Scared the shit out of me. <laughs> so, um, where did you move? <laughs> oh, I get around, you know. Never know where I might pop up. <laughs> what do you actually do? Oh, I can tell you. But then, I'd have to kill you. Let's play. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, we're back, and we are here to talk about Wolf Creek. When friends Christy, Ben, and Liz go for a hike during their holiday in Australia through the scenic Wolf Creek National Park in the Australian Outback, they encounter more than they bargain for when their car won't start and they run into a friendly yet somewhat sinister bushman named Mick Taylor. Wow, we watched it. We watched this movie. Finally, I feel like we've been talking about and wanting to watch this movie since before we started the podcast. Yeah, I think so. Uh, This movie came out in 2005. It has been a while since this movie came out. Oh, geez, yeah. More than 10 years. It had always been sort of marketed to me as a torture-born film, so I avoided it like the plague, as we've talked about in the past. Well aware there is no supernatural aspect or creature element of this. No uh, wolf in Wolf Creek, I guess, oddly enough. No werewolf, not like our upcoming Patreon episode about the wolfman. Yeah, it was our first time watch for both of us, and I dug it. Yeah, me too, surprisingly. I feel like at some point we need to just trust the masses although i still refuse to watch hostile i'd heard good things about this movie and it was good yeah. as advertised yeah and yeah. i've heard that the sequel is like more fun Ooh, yeah Texas chainsaw massacre too i mean hey it could be they go to austin oddly enough oh <laughs> it takes place in texas instead of austria and okay. uh no um and then there's a follow-up tv show we'll you know we'll talk about all the different media that um the wolf creek what do you call it what are the what are the superhero things shared universe or whatever marvel universe <laughs> yeah it's interesting you know wolf creek is such like a creepy ominous name and right after we started the movie i was like is that even a real place it is it's a meteor crater yeah good old mick taylor found some meat in that meteor i guess Ooh. Let's dig into a little bit of the production of the movie. So this is directed by Greg McLean, and it was his feature film debut. Wow. Quite a debut, right? I'm uh, I'm impressed. He has actually a pretty great list of credits after Wolf Creek um, as well. And one I'm actually interested in all of these uh, that I'm going to list fairly quickly. The follow-up to Wolf Creek was Rogue, and it is, I think it's a giant crocodile movie. That's been done before, though. Yeah, but the, oh, I love, uh, you know, long story, short story. When I was a kid, uh, there was a TV movie, I think it was called Alligator, and it was the, oh, family flushes the little baby alligator down the toilet. Uh, they won't, they don't, whatever, whatever for reasons that I think they didn't want the kid to have the pet. And then it like grows into a big toxic alligator. And then it bites their butts while they're sitting on the toilet. Yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. Just like Ghoulies. It, the tagline, yep. oddly enough, is they'll get you in the end. <laughs> <laughs> it's not It's not really online. But uh, Rogue was the follow-up. And then he followed it up with Wolf Creek 2, which now I really want to check out. Yeah, I, I'm definitely down for that. So the last couple of years, he's worked really regularly. Uh, he has directed some TV. You know, in terms of feature films, he has The Darkness, which is a Blumhouse production starring Kevin Bacon and uh, Rada Mitchell. And that is uh, sounds actually pretty cool. It's about a family that awakens an ancient supernatural entity on a Grand Canyon vacation. Our honeymoon was at the Grand Canyon. They must fight for survival when it follows them home. Oh, we have to watch that. Yeah. Let's watch that for our two-year wedding anniversary. Oh, perfect. Yeah, Yeah. let's do that. All right. That sounds good. And then, um, you know, I don't have to go into an office anymore, but this is his uh, office revenge movie, The Belco Experiment, uh, a long gestating project that was written by James Gunn back before he started The Guardian the galaxy it's about office workers locked they're like locked in a high-rise office there's like this booming voice that tells them that they need to all like kill each other or else they'll be killed so a little bit of a hunger games-esque lord well not lord of the flies or something <laughs> well else. yeah i mean lord, lord of the flies yeah. i think kind of inspired all of that we talk about hunger games i always think about a royale right anytime there's like a group of people have to kill each other and then uh his latest and greatest uh which is actually streaming on amazon prime now called jungle starring daniel radcliffe and it is about um after harry potter grows up and then he goes on a jungle adventure oh 
Potter in the Jungle. Nice. Yes. That must be before he becomes a, a farting corpse. Oh, yeah, Swiss Army yes. Man, oh. which is amazing. I love that movie. It is. That was yeah. like my favorite movie of that year. Yeah. It's Poor so good. Harry Potter. Who would have thought that's how it ended? Yep. Yep. yep, you would have never known. But uh, Jungle uh, tells a true story. A uh, former Israeli soldier, Yossi Ginsberg, and two friends, and they go into the Bolivian jungle in the early 80s, and then they all get separated, and then it's sort of about, it's a, it's a survival movie. Oh, cool. Quite a good, uh, good list of credits there. He's a very current filmmaker, so... And uh, Wolf Creek being his first movie. What a calling card. Really well, this movie is really well cast. Yeah, I think it helped that no one was very recognizable. It it helped make it seem so real. Because it's not like, you know, you're watching it and being like, oh, I remember this person from whatever movie. We have John Jarrett as Mick Taylor. And I remember listening to a podcast a couple of years ago where they interviewed uh, Greg McLean and he was talking about how he cast the role of Mick and John Jarrett was his only choice, but it was a little weird because for years, John had been the host, the co-host of the lifestyle show Better Homes and Gardens with his then wife, uh, Noni Hazelhurst. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh my God. So they, you know, uh, you see... You see this guy who's talking about gardening and landscaping and architecture and cooking and do-it-yourself home stuff and pet care and and home improvement, interviewing celebrity guests for like years. And then all of a sudden he's playing a serial killer in Wolf Creek. I love that. Now I'm just imagining like the property brothers as a team of serial killers i feel like if they had had yeah. acted like before that that would have could have been a scenario you know he was however a um, australian new wave actor so he had been in a lot of stuff through the 70s and into the 80s just a couple of of lists um i would i actually wasn't i mean i wasn't aware of him as an actor up until you know i heard about wolf creek but his film debut was The Great McCarthy in 1975. And then that same year, he was in a Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock. He was in Summer City with Mel Gibson, another one of those Australian New Wave actors who, before all the crazy stuff happened, was a big deal. He was Mad Max. Yeah. I don't like him anymore. Yeah, no. Sorry. Sorry, Mel. Long time listener to the show. <laughs> How many times can I make that joke on our show, Chelsea? One more time. All right. All right. I'll save always, it for a Always one more time. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, next time you make it, it'll still be one more time. Yep. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, he played Ned Kelly in the 1979 miniseries The Last Outlaw, playing, well, he played Ned Kelly. <laughs> uh, he had a supporting role as young Australian soldier in the Vietnam War in um, uh, The Odd Angry Shot in 1980. So he has been in quite a few films. He was quite the actor, but then kind of fell into the role of uh, home and garden host. I wonder if there are any old episodes on YouTube like i need to see this yeah yeah because i mean he does come off off with like this bit of like odd electric charisma in the movie oh yeah and when he's you know being friendly and charming yeah, it, it works he yeah. really pulls it off we have the role of liz hunter played by cassandra mcgrath one of her most recent movies that i found was a film called scare campaign but she was also in the TV series Neighbors. Um, she did five episodes in 2012. And then when I think of Neighbors, you know, I've, I've heard a lot about the two shows that actors have been on. It's Neighbors and it's Home and Away. And those credits seem to be consistent um, kind of on IMDb and stuff. So Neighbors is Australia's longest running drama series. And it follows the lives of the residents of Ramsey Street, which is a six house cul-de-sac in, well, it turns out it's like a fictitious suburb of uh, Melbourne called Erinsborough. 
And then Home and Away is also set in a fictional Australian town, which is Summer Bay. And it's a small hamlet just north of Sydney. And it's a long running soap. So it seems like a lot of people are always in both of those. Between 1995 and 2002, Cassandra McGrath was in multiple Australian TV shows, including Ocean Girl, Sea Change, Crash Zone, and Shock Jock. To our Australian listeners, I'm sure you're all familiar with all those shows. I have never seen any of them. We have the role of Christy Earle, played by Kesty Marassi, and she was in three seasons of HBO Satisfaction. She was in the 2003 horror film Darkness Falls, and that's like the weird Tooth Fairy movie. I don't know. Have you seen it? Or does... No, I've not heard of it either. Darkness Falls is an interesting name for a, a Tooth Fairy movie. It sounds like an action film. <laughs> yeah. I remember going to see it and being highly disappointed. Um, uh. It's about a kid who thinks he saw the Tooth Fairy, but the Tooth Fairy tries to kill him that night. And as he grows up, he's like convinced that there's a killer Tooth Fairy out there on the loose. And the whole town like basically think he's crazy. But um, it turns out that she's actually a ghost that is haunting the town. Uh. But it's not good. Sorry. Isn't there actually a movie where Vin Diesel plays the Tooth Fairy? Or is oh, it The Rock? Is. is The Rock or is it Vin Diesel? Oh, now you've confused me. I get so mad when you've mixed them up. Yeah. But uh. now who's the one mixing them up? Oh, is I haven't seen you? the movie, so I don't even know. <laughs> oh. Not that smart about movies. She was also on Neighbors in 1996. She was on the TV show based on Don Coscarelli's Beastmaster movie series. Now she's one of the leads on Home and Away. Now, this really freaked me out, though. You talk about, like, not recognizing people. I didn't recognize Nathan Phillips as Ben Mitchell either, but looking up his credits, he was in Neighbors in 99. He was the lead kid in the sequel to a movie we were just talking about, um, the 2002 sequel to Warriors of Virtue, which is that mutant kangaroo fantasy movie. They have to, like, combine the elements, and I think each kangaroo has, like, a... It's like the um, not Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> like, the mystical, youthful kangaroo mutants. It just sounds so weird. <laughs> yeah. He's in the Chernobyl Diaries, which always pops up on like recommended lists on every streaming service we have. Uh, and that is, I think it's found footage. They go on like a tour of the Chernobyl reactor and then it's like some spooky stuff happens. He was in the TV series for Sci-Fi Hunters, which is an adaptation of Wesley Stryber's Alien Hunter. He was in these final hours which is he's the the lead actually in that and it's a sci-fi film from 2013 and that's about the last few hours of earth and i think like he's like on his way to a party and has to rescue like a little girl and decide what to do before the, the world ends i barely remember the movie except for the you know the one line everyone remembers and that he is the lead uh in snakes on a plane that's crazy to me because i don't know anything like i saw snakes on a plane and i remember nothing except that there were snakes on a plane like there's a target the snakes were after something i thought they were just on a plane uh nathan phillips plays the witness to like a hit or whatever and then they're transporting him on the plane and samuel jackson is protecting him and then the the guys that are after nathan phillips unleash the snakes to kill him before he can testify I didn't even realize the snakes were released deliberately. And I watched the movie. Man. Yeah. <laughs> no? Woo, yeah. So, snakes on a plane. You think of uh, Wolf Creek? I think of snakes on a plane. Get these. <laughs> wolves off of my <laughs> plane. <laughs> Wait, what? Get these, what is it, monkey fighting wolves out of this Monday to Friday creek. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> There's a version of the movie that will air on television where they do not want to say the F word, just like we tend to avoid it on this podcast. Um, and yeah, they replace it with monkey fighting and Monday to Friday. That's the best. It's excellent. Yeah. 
So we were talking a little bit about how Wolf Creek has carried on since this initial first film. And it turns out that um, Mick Taylor's character is so popular that there's the 2013 sequel. But there's also a TV series that is on its second season that started airing, I think, of December of last year. And I think it just wrapped up. But you can find the first season streaming on Shudder, which they're not advertisers of the show. However, they should be because we recommend quite a few things <laughs> that they're streaming. A 19-year-old American tourist who goes to avenge her family's murder at the hands of Mick Taylor. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Greg McLean directed episodes and written episodes and all that. So he has a, a hand in the creation of the show. And there were also two books that were co-written by Greg McLean's uh, Wolf Creek Origin that he co-wrote with Aaron Stearns and then Wolf Creek Desolation Game with Brett McBean. Wow, it really is popular. Yeah. Books, tie-in novels. Yeah. That's crazy. That's like some Star Wars level stuff. So Wolf Creek had a $1 million budget. Its opening weekend, I guess it did pretty well. It was like almost $250,000 released a couple days before Halloween in 2005. And then... It hit the U.S. actually on another holiday uh, that Christmas, where it made $5 million and then ended up grossing like $16 million in the U.S. and worldwide $28 million. So on that $1 million initial budget, I guess it made some money. So, you know, as we were talking about the end of the Ivan Malat case, the film actually originated as just a standard slasher that occurred in the All-Starring Outback, and uh, Greg McLean had actually written it in the late 90s, but wasn't so crazy about it. And then when the Malak case came to light, it inspired him to rewrite it. And then he was like, oh, maybe I could introduce this idea of having a a nice guy that is going to help out. But well, he's a serial killer. The sign at the entrance to the uh, mining company where Mick takes his victims is actually the name of backpacker murderer Ivan Malat spelled backwards. So it's Navithalem Mining Company. That's crazy. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Clever. Yeah. I like it. Yep. I like that. And for you Troll 2 fans out there, you'll know that Nilbog, the town of Nilbog, is goblin spelled backwards. So you always have to double check weird sounding names of cities, towns, small towns especially, or little locations like. Yeah. Yeah. If you wind up at a mining company where the name of it is Ivan Malat spelled backwards, Run. <laughs> yeah. Run. Yes. Yeah. Run, don't walk. Yeah. Away. Yeah. You hop in your car, it may not start. So you got to watch out. Just run. Also, the director of public prosecutions in the Northern Territory asked that the filmmakers delay the distribution and screening of the film until after the trial of Bradley John Murdoch. And he was the one that was accused of murdering the British backpacker Peter Falconio. Murdoch's trial commenced on October 17th of 2005. So they waited a whole, like, 11 days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. This must have been a short trial. Right? Yeah, just a little bit. Um, going back to the mine a little bit, the crew did not know this, but the mine where they filmed in had actually been the site of a real-life murder of a woman. And the filming there prompted... A protest from locals who thought that the film was about those events. And I'm not sure what event specifically they're talking about. I couldn't find any cross-reference on that. So It's interesting. Like, don't film a movie about the murder in the mine. Oh, you're just filming a movie about Ivan Malat? That's okay, then. Yeah. yeah. Those murders are fine. Not this murder, yeah. though. Like, that guy sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So John Jarrett, who plays Mick, he is a method actor, which we always know that they tend to do sort of outlandish things in preparation for their role and then during filming. Apparently, he kind of just like lived in the desert a bit. The one thing that I like in our Patreon episode, actually, we were talking about Dracula and of Renfield's laugh. And that laugh's really creepy. The <laughs> um, yeah, and like Mick has like also a creepy laugh, and uh, apparently it like took him a couple months to just like get it just right. And I was like, wow, that's that's hardcore. That's like a Heath Ledger Joker Joker Diary kind of thing. Yeah, but I feel like that's also the kind of dedication that really pays off. You know, the way everything came together to create his character, it's really become iconic. That's why there's books and sequels and TV shows now. I mean, he's no Freddy Krueger. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you just love your supernatural villains. Nah. You know, a testament to John Jarrett's talent was just the fact that he was the only one that Greg McLean auditioned for the role. He was like, hey, this is the guy. Would you be flattered if a director came to you and said, I wrote this character with you in mind. He is a creepy serial killer. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. I guess, yeah, I'd be kind of honored and also a little bit like, ooh, hey. Hey, what's like, going on? I host a home and gardening TV show. Yes. Why would you think of me? <laughs> okay. A couple of so-so taglines. <laughs> so the first one, based on true events. Me. I mean, it always works. I feel like that's definitely a selling point for these sorts of movies, but I want more from a tagline. Yeah. Like, I couldn't make a button out of that and sell it. I mean, maybe. The thrill is in the hunt. Yeah, that one's fine. This one, I think, was more the, like, um, the, it like, like facts the opening that come scroll, out in the opening, yeah. um, where it says... 30,000 are reported missing in Australia every year. Some are never seen again. How are there that many people? I feel like that's the population of Australia. <laughs> yeah. Could be. Sorry, Australia. No, sorry. sorry. It's like uh, almost half the population of Santa Fe. <laughs> yeah. So where'd everybody go? And then 90% of them are found in a month. So it's like, are people just disappearing? What's going on? Well, it just says some are never seen again. Maybe it's like people being reported missing by their overzealous parents when they're going backpacking. It's yeah. Like, I uh, haven't heard from you in 24 hours. So I'm calling the police. Yes. So yeah. if you are in Australia and you're one of our listeners, have you been reported missing? And was it a mistake? Yes. Okay. Just let us know. This one, I feel like pulls it together a little bit more, but you can be the judge here. How can you be found when no one knows you're missing? I like that as a tagline, but I feel like it doesn't really tie into the movie at all because they weren't even gone long enough, I feel like, to be reported missing. It was one, like one night. So and, and I, don't, right, I don't know. I think the thrill is in the hunt is the best of those. I feel like they could have done better. I feel like had it been a Hollywood production, it could have been a play on the Crocodile Dundee, that's not a knife thing. Something really schlocky. It's not a schlocky movie. No, it's at not at all. all. No, it's, it's yeah. really Even serious. Even the thrillers in the hunt seems almost too schlocky for this movie. Because it's not like he's even hunting them. That's the thing I thought that he was. Before we watched it, I, I thought that he hunted them through the outback or whatever. But yeah. he's just like right away. He's like hiding in plain sight. He's like they're helping them. Yeah, I was I was very surprised. I guess we're just now getting into the discussion of the film. So uh, I did want to ask you after doing the, um, the research on Ivan Malat and his family family and then the breath of murders and then all of the unsolved ones did this impact your enjoyment of wolf creek i do feel like although ivan malat is an inspiration for specifically i would say the character of mick taylor um 
it didn't really feel like like his crimes that this movie was about. Because oh, like yeah. to start with, it's it's a group of three rather than one or two. This is not people who were picked up hitchhiking. I feel like the connection was very loose and i'd be curious i know there are a few other forms of media out there that were inspired by ivan malat i would love to see a movie based on ivan malat that maybe gets into the like did he or didn't he and was the family involved angle but i think that you know to just read you know the headline read an article about him and it's not based on true events it's like inspired I feel like yeah. you, he read the story and was inspired by the the horrors that these people faced. The stories, especially Paul Onion's story of survival, feels so much like a horror movie. I do think that you could see that and be like, oh, Australia is just so vast. There are these places where there just aren't people for miles. How scary must it have been to be a victim of Ivan Milat and be captured in this super remote area and really actually must kind of feel like being like hunted and being trapped and I think that he's able to take that and spin it into this character that's really separate and I love the the friendly aspect I think that's you know taken from Ivan Milat and also you know Bradley Murdoch you know the way he would initially present himself as oh let me help you with your car or oh let me give you a ride to where you're going and then just turn it's it's creepy it's creepy. I think it's it's a good movie. It's it's very effective, and it's not at all what I was expecting. Yeah, same here. I had a little bit of flashback to my uh, Outback Adventure. We're when you're talking about the remote aspect of this, and it's true. It's like traveling through the middle part of the continent. This sort of scenario could very easily imagine it happening. It's beautiful, but I think there are there are risks wherever you are, where it's really remote. And it's also a lot of Ivan Milat's victims and the the victims in this movie are tourists which i think introduces a whole nother aspect of that it's not like their parents are waiting at home for them to get to get home like who knows when their loved ones are even expecting to hear from them next it feels really like uh open season yeah well it's funny because like ben has that moment where things kind of shift when they're with mick and it almost feels like he's not a countryman either. Like it's, he says something kind of off color and it really like kind of insults Mick, but then he plays it off like, Oh, I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, but you, you know, you see it in his eyes. And uh, I think that's a testament to John Jarrett's performance. Yeah. But you know, that's when things have changed. Yeah. And, and Ben is Australian, right? I don't know yeah. if they established it outright, but it kind of implied like, you know, he's a, a girlfriend back home, whatever. So I'm sure it seemed like maybe he's from the city going on this, backwoods adventure and really no match for for someone who's in his element the way mick is liz and christy are are british on holiday and you know it kind of starts off they've been there for a while and partying and traveling through hostels and and stuff like that ben like buys a car so they can do some traveling yeah um which i think i mean that seems kind of like a believable scenario it definitely did feel that way and it's I feel like the movie does a really good job building tension because I want to say it was almost for the first half of it, like nothing really happens that's, you know, feels much like a horror movie, but you're always expecting it to happen, which I think 
is is how it does a good job it's like almost half of the movie is is following their like fun road trip adventures and like they don't know they're in a horror movie but we know they're in a horror movie um and the the turn it takes um well we could talk a little bit about about the plot so you know they they go to wolf creek crater or something and it's beautiful and it's like a three hour hike and when they get back their car doesn't start but it's like kind of rainy and yeah it's kind of a kind of a crappy day yeah for a hike so i think they call it quits early right they could decide to go back yeah um yeah it's, i mean they go back they try to start the car it does not start but lucky for them maybe a nice friendly man comes along and, and could you imagine i think they do a good job of being like you're out in the middle of nowhere there's no one around and your car will not start there's nowhere you can walk to i mean i think they go to a roadhouse on their way to wolf creek so yeah. you, you meet some people but like after that they're they're on their own this this guy shows up this is bushman yeah and he's so friendly and like cheerful and charming and looks at their car sees the issue says i guess he had like a spare part back home and offers to tow the car to his his home in a in an abandoned mine that is ivan malat spelled backwards but they go back and he you know offers them something to drink they sit around the fire they chat a little bit and then you know, he, he goes to work on the car. I think it's Liz again who, like, goes to, to talk to him while he's working. It's just like, you know, we, we'd like to leave as soon as possible. I mean, like, can you hurry it up with your kind gesture before you murder us? Yeah, um, but then it turns out. And the, this turn <laughs> is so sudden. Yeah. I, I was really jarred. Which I think is a testament to the effectiveness of the movie because it turns out, I guess, the the water was drugged. So suddenly Liz wakes up and she's tied up and locked in a shed and separated from from the other two. Yeah, I think there's a moment. And now it's a horror movie. (laughs) Now it's a horror movie. Yes. Yeah. It's like all this like very slow burn. And then now we're in it. Yeah. That moment is just really tough. And then she, after she wakes up, you know, he has Christy tied up in the garage and he's being extraordinarily cruel to her and i guess like this is the biggest scene where the like torture porn is kind of kind of used as like a description for this movie yeah i don't think i don't think the movie earns it no it's i feel like it's nothing compared to some other movies of that time i thought he was like showing off his guns at that point because i remember it struck me as being very like very inspired by ivan malat with like the the guns being of significance and then i think it turns out that there's also another decomposing body is hanging in the garage is that true yes it's true yeah, there are some other bodies that, that pop up later. But yes, yeah, so Liz sees Christy tied up and she goes to distract Mick and lure him away by lighting uh, their car on fire. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. Which, is, which is pretty cool. And that's kind of the indicator. You're like, oh, is she going to be the final girl? Oh, yeah. We're having this discussion throughout, basically from the first scene, trying to figure out which of of the two girls is going to be the final girl. She this very final girl move. She gets Christy and unties her. And when Mick comes back, she shoots Mick with his own gun. Oh, and I was like, man, how is he not done for? Yeah. Uh, but but no. it was like a it was a grazing wound, but I think it was like on his neck, so it was not like an insignificant wound. They're able to escape in his truck, but he ends up chasing them, and they're able to they like get out of the truck and push it off a cliff to make him think that they had driven off a cliff. Oh, he's so smart though. But he knows. Yeah, he knows. yeah, he does know. So um, Liz ends up leaving Christy there to go find Ben and she tells Christy, I'm not back in however many minutes, just make a run for it. So then at that point, they're kind of split up separately. Um, 
Liz goes back to the camp. She discovers a bunch of bodies and also a bunch of belongings. This is one of my favorite tropes of a remote family or a singular like killer of tourists or travelers. It just gives you this grand sense of scale of yeah. how horrific this like Mick is. And I think it's pretty reminiscent to you know what police must have felt going through Ivan Malat's house. Imagine going through and being like, oh, this sleeping bag belonged to this victim. It's like this camera belonged to this victim. It's just there. <laughs> Yeah. out in the open oh it's um, terrifying but oh spoiler alert neither of them are the final girl <laughs> um, liz ends up being killed by mick at the camp he corners her and actually another bit inspired by ivan malat stabs her to to paralyze her so that was what ivan's cellmate said that ivan would do to to women to paralyze them before he he sexually assaulted them so uh, yeah terrible <sighs> terrible yes. terrible yes. yeah and then Christy makes it to the highway. So as told by Liz, she runs away after a certain amount of time and she gets picked up by a kindly older gentleman before they are both shot and killed by Mick, um, like sniper style. They're both killed. And then it turns out that the, the final girl is actually... Ben. Ben. <laughs> yep. ben is the final girl. Good he's job, been, Ben. He has been crucified. He has been crucified. Yeah, I guess that scene's a little bit torture porny. They do kind of show show everything. He like pulls himself off the nails and, and just kind of wanders off. He's found on the side of the road, you know, passed out, but alive by a pair of tourists. And of course, I think at, as you would expect... The last couple scenes are he had been on trial for for the murders of the the two women. Well, yeah, I mean, it it probably looked exactly like that's what had happened, but it turns out it was not. So he was acquitted, but Mick was never found or charged. And the last scene is him uh, walking into the sunset. Yep. Yep, a happy yeah. ending for Mick. Yes. <laughs> Not for anyone else. No, no. Well, I guess for Ben. Well, Ben lost his friends, so. Oh, yeah. I don't think that's a happy ending for Ben. It does feel like after you're like, okay, there's no final girl, that they're all just going to die. Yeah. I I feel like by that point, I had kind of forgotten about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You figure there'd be a shot of him like dead somewhere. Yeah. Who cares about the guy in a horror movie? Oh. But he made it. Maybe he but, survived because yeah. he was Australian too. Only tourists. <laughs> no, two of Ivan Malat's victims were Australian. So. Oh yeah, probably one of the the more horrific aspects is just that yeah the reveal of all of the people that he has killed. I feel like that's a great part of the script where you can write very little, but it tells a lot, and it's not really you don't need exposition, and it doesn't need the like a big budget to like flashbacks or news clips or whatever it's just like here it is just laying it all out there yeah i agree and i think it helps by revealing it rather than showing it i think the film really benefited from being so confined it's the story of these three people going on adventure and falling into this person's like web or whatever it's not like movies where you see 12 teenagers brutally murdered and hacked to bits oh yeah you know it's i i do like how how confined it is while you still get a sense of the scale of this person's crimes and and what he's capable of i think they do a really good job with that oh no that's a great point because if there had been more people along for the ride there would have been just more cruelty and he would have had to have inventive kills and catchy quips about each of them yeah maybe that's in the sequel i am ready to check out wolf creek 2 and the series probably won't read the books unless you know really get into it but that's wolf creek 
check it out. We couldn't find it streaming anywhere for free, all right? We rented it. We did, yeah. So thanks to our Patreon supporters yes. for paying for our movie. Yes, thank you so much. That went towards our iTunes uh, rental on Wolf Creek. So thank you so much. I thought it was an interesting inspiration behind the true crime of Ivan Millet. As we wrap up this episode, I just wanted to ask... Um, if you had anything now playing. Gosh, it's been so long since we last recorded. I think my last coming soon was The Outsider. Oh, right. right? I had yeah. just gotten the the audio book and I was going to listen to it on my ridiculously long weekly commutes to work. So I listened to The Outsider. Did you like it? I loved it. Um, so then after that, I listened to Mr. Mercedes and I loved it. And then I listened to Finders Keepers and I loved it. And now I'm halfway through End of Watch. I've fallen down a Stephen King hole. And the I'm best. loving every minute of it. The best kind of hole um, to fall down. Yeah, there's all of these audio... <laughs> Um, all of these audiobooks are narrated by Will Patton, and he does such a good job. Uh, my dad has been listening to them at the same time as me, but he's listening to them for the second time. So, but yeah, they're they're excellent. I love them, and I'm I'm excited for. I think uh, my next Stephen King book is going to be Duma Key, which David has recommended to me. So yeah, it's fun. If anyone else has Stephen King book recommendations, I think the only book of his that I've read is The Stand. I'm using Scribed for this, so sorry, Audible, but you're not supporting our podcast, so <laughs> uh, so especially if anyone out there has Scribed and wants to recommend books that are on there for me. Yeah, my commute has been kind of hellish, especially with construction. So there was a day when it took me almost three hours to get home. So yeah, thank you, audiobooks, for not making <laughs> me get out of my car and murder everyone. Uh, what about you, David? What's your now playing? It has been a while, so there's been a lot of comings and goings of media but i guess uh the one thing i just wanted to give a shout out was glow season two we watched it over one afternoon but then it spilled into i think the last episode or two was the next morning it's it's so good i love it do you have anything coming soon like things that are on your list uh i wonder if this would be a now playing or coming soon but there's a there's a particular story that i first read when i was very young and this was a manga called boys over flowers and i have happily consumed every adaptation of this very silly romantic story that um i i could get my grubby little hands on (laughs) (laughs) and they made a a new drama based on it that is airing weekly on netflix so my coming soon is the next episode of meteor garden Cool. Yep. Extra, some extra nerdiness for you guys. Y'all thought David was the bigger nerd, but it's actually me. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. What's your coming soon? <laughs> because of when we're recording this, I had listed Mad Monster Party Phoenix, but that already happened. Yep. I would say um, coming soon, feeling recovered from Mad Monster Party. I am exhausted. But you're, you've been feeling a little better every day. Yeah. Yep. Better enough today strength. to record, so... Better enough day to record, better enough day to ship off a uh, illustration of David from the Lost Boys to a big Instagram contest, maybe do a little more illustration, painting, stuff like that. So um, actually, at Mad Monster, visited the Severn Films booth and picked up an erratic thriller by Lucia Fulci, and that is called The Devil's Honey, and also most importantly excited to watch Zombie 3. So that's, uh, that's some coming soon. As we uh we wind down, just wanted to remind you all of our social media presence. We are all over the internet. We've got an Instagram at Based on a True Crime. We have a Facebook page. It's well, it's Facebook, and then it's uh Based on a True Crime podcast. 
most importantly, click on the Join Group button and uh, join us at our Cult of Based on a True Crime Facebook discretion group. It's nice and active. It's nice and personalized. We love it. Yep. And it's where you'll find us, uh, especially as we take a little bit of extra time between episodes. Yep. Yeah, yep. exactly. We're always on there, though. You can't get me away from Facebook. <laughs> uh, on Twitter, at True Crime Based. Another thing you may not know about, we have a Patreon. We actually do an exclusive episode. We just did Dracula and Vlad Tepish, and that was a really fun one. Uh, we have an upcoming one that is also kind of inspired by uh, Universal Monster movies. Well, the only other one I'll say, we've done Silence of the Lambs. So the inspiration behind Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, that's so, a fun one. Yeah, so Love go over on. Movie. Yeah, uh, pledges as low as $1 to get those exclusive episodes. So join us over there. Uh, also, um, we're members of the Murderly Network. So check out Murderly. It's uh, murder.ly. Yep. And you can see our the network of shows that are also inspired by true crime. Yes, our pod family. If you would like to see my art and what I'm up to, follow me, Lab Creature, on Instagram, at Lab Creature. Our podcast theme and supporting music was composed and performed by Nico Vitis of We Talk of Dreams. You can find him on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams and also on Instagram at the same handle. Website is wetalkofdreams.com, so pretty easy to find. That's it. It's time for bed. Before we shut our eyes, though, just remember, death is but a door. And time is but a window. We'll be back. This is Minna from True Crime Finland. Ah, Finland, so peaceful and safe. There isn't even any crime there, right? Wrong. Join me every two weeks in discovering the dark side of the land of a thousand lakes. Everything from human trafficking and Ponzi schemes to double homicide and child abuse. From the forgotten and lesser known to the legendary and infamous Finnish cases, the podcast will be sure to offer something for everyone. You can find True Crime Finland on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. wondered how it was possible that a defendant got acquitted? Are you interested in criminal justice reform? 
do you often find yourself making extraordinarily inappropriate jokes while swearing like a sailor? Then the Getting Off podcast is for you. Hosted by us. Two real-life criminal defense attorneys. Getting Off explains the legal reasons behind outcomes in famous trials and tackles tough topics in the world of crime and criminal justice. We use first-hand sources like trial transcripts, police reports, crime scene photographs, and appeals briefs to give you the information that the public rarely hears about when it comes to the criminal justice system. Our podcast isn't about carefully crafted musical interludes or obsessively edited narratives. Instead, it is a no-holds-barred, unedited, raw legal presentation by two lawyers that have spent over a decade each in the trenches. Previously covered cases include Casey Anthony, Michael Peterson, Jody Arias, and more. Subscribe to the Getting Off podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Do that to get off now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.